Welcome to Everything Belongs, a podcast for those living, creating, leading, and thriving while in the deep end of life. I'm your host, Madison Morgan, leadership coach, creative consultant, and speaker. I coach soulful visionaries and go-getting mavericks who desire to create art of their lives and take their work both deeper and higher. In this show, I'll be bringing you an overflow of conversations with my favorite thought leaders, teachers, healers, and creatives who inspire me to live more fully in my own power, worth, and wholeness, along with offering some episodes where I share my own practical insights, behind-the-scenes peeks into my process, and tools I use on my own journey. There will not be much we shy away from here because at this table, everything belongs. Therefore, you can expect me to ask the uncomfortable, juicy questions. You can expect that you'll hear people you disagree with on the podcast and maybe even ideas you've never previously considered. I trust you with your own discernment as we take this deep dive. You can expect to laugh, cry, learn, and be challenged by the guests as they share their diverse experiences and views of the world. It's my hope through learning to see that all of it belongs, that you will develop a more sovereign way of holding yourself so you can playfully go after the life, relationships, and career you are made for, to let all parts of yourself have a seat at the table, to lead and create from your deepest truth and become your own source of validation, all because you finally know you're worthy of it. All that's required to get started, that you show up curious and willing. Let's dive in. Hello friends, I am so thankful that you are tuning into the podcast today. It is a Saturday and I am packing up to head on my first vacation since before the pandemic. I was in Hawaii the beginning of January of 2020 and very shortly after that everything shut down and as you know some people have been traveling but it hasn't felt right to be traveling for me until this point. I've gone to our tiny house and I've been to some really short and local trips to Airbnbs to give myself that staycation. But given that it is my birthday week, I wanted to go and do something really special with my closest group of friends. So as you're listening to this, I am currently on vacation if you're listening in real time and am feeling so good. And you know, before we even dive into the podcast, I want to give a nod to those people who are therapists, supporters, teachers, people in helping spaces, nurses, and mental health workers, healers of any sort, because we have not, most of us have not had a break from the influx of people needing care since the pandemic has begun. And although I haven't taken a legitimate vacation fully off work since January of 2020, I have been infusing vacation-like qualities into my days and have really upped some of my boundaries in work so I could actually have more sustainable energy in my business because it is no joke that we need more support and those of us who give support are giving more support than maybe we ever were before. So before we dive into the podcast episode, I wanted to share a couple ways that I have been supporting myself to live like I'm on vacation without even going on vacation. And the first is taking actual weekends off. Now, I know that sounds super obvious and super easy, but it's not something that I was doing before and it's not something I ever really felt I needed to do. But actually taking weekends off, deleting social media from my phone, not responding to any emails, any client messages, and actually having that be an expectation to my team that I really don't work on weekends has been huge. 
Now, the other thing is I have added office hours to my programs and have limited the amount of time I spend speaking to clients and the way I speak to them. So my rising sovereign clients, as some of you might know, get access to me pretty much every day of the week and my one-on-one clients do as well. But what I've done is I've set aside time every single day to, to check in with those apps. So they're not constantly notifying me every day, all day, which I've done in the past previously, just responding when those messages come in. My clients are a priority in my work days. They're the first thing I do every single day is checking with my clients and see what's going on with them and coach them. But I've really learned through this pandemic that I need to be a little bit more deliberate with the way that I'm serving and the time that I'm serving. And the third thing I've done is I usually don't start work until around 10 or 11 a.m. And I have the most spacious mornings. I tend to sleep until 8.30, sometimes even 9 o'clock in the day. And I get up really slow. I make coffee. I sit on the porch. And I just really block that time off for me. Sometimes I work out. Sometimes I do an extended tarot reading. Sometimes I just sit with my girlfriend and we talk on the porch and shoot the shit. But it has been so important for me to spend my mornings like a spacious vacation-like morning where before COVID, I was really structured in my mornings. I was up really early. I was working out. I was getting, I had a very structured life and I had to surrender that to infuse this sense of spaciousness and freedom that During parts of the pandemic, it didn't feel like I actually had access to either because I wasn't able to travel or there was lockdown or my client load was busier than ever. So if you haven't been able to go on vacation, those are some of the ways that I have been infusing vacation-like qualities into my life. And I'll just repeat them really quick. The first is deleting social media apps on the weekends and really not engaging in work-related tasks or even having work-related conversations on the weekends. The second is that I've really begun to structure the way that I work and the time and energy I work in to be so different and to honor my energy and to honor my deep work. And the third is like the most delicious, spacious mornings followed by really long sleep at night, like as long of a sleep as I can. So if you are a healer, a space holder, someone who is supporting a lot of people right now, please take care of yourself. We are in this for the long haul and endurance is the way. We are playing the long game. So thanks for letting me share a little bit. I'm curious what I'm going to come back from vacation having realized and how I even maybe need to up my boundaries and my energetic container a little bit more. But until then, let's dive into today's episode. I'm super excited to have Sarah Baldwin As a guest on the show today, she is a somatic experiencing practitioner and an embodiment coach. She is trained in polyvagal interventions and is on the training team at the Polyvagal Institute. She specializes in somatic trauma healing, attachment work, nervous system regulation, somatic parts and inner child work. And this conversation is so juicy. Sarah is such a profound educator. And as you listen, I just feel like your inner child is going to be so soothed because the way that she communicates, even her vocal tonality is so compassionate. And so as we enter this conversation about nervous system healing, about attachment wounds, and really honoring the different kinds of attachments that happen, whether it's secure, anxious, avoidant, or disorganized, and how to actually begin healing those different types. And so I hope that you leave this conversation with hope, like Sarah says, that all nervous systems can heal. 
all nervous systems can heal and all attachments can heal as well. And of course, if you love this episode, please leave a five-star review and let myself and Sarah know what specifically about this episode you deeply enjoyed. Well, without further ado, let's dive into this conversation with Sarah Baldwin. Beautiful, Sarah. Thank you so much for joining me. It has been so fun getting to watch your teachings on IGTV and through Instagram the last year that I followed you. And I find something so calming about your presence and your voice. And I am just so grateful to share that with the people who listen to the podcast. Oh, thank you so much for having me, Madison. It uh, it's such an honor to be here with you and to be here with your community. And um, I've listened to a lot of your podcast episodes. So I'm just uh, grateful for the work that you do. And I'm really grateful to be here with whoever is listening right now. Well, wonderful. I would love to know how it is you describe what you do if you were to describe it to someone who didn't have context like we do to the coaching and therapeutic world. Yeah. So, um, so what I would say is when people are finding themselves stuck in any particular area of their life, um, or not fully being able to do the things they really want to do, then I help them to resolve the underlying issues that are in the way of allowing that to happen. And that's usually uh, trauma. And, um, and, and it's important because trauma has become such a buzzword. Um, to know that the purpose of resolving trauma isn't to dig up trauma. The purpose of resolving trauma is so that we can live a full embodied life. So, uh, so that's what I help people to do. And I do somatic work, which is different than cognitive work. And cognitive work is just um, using my uh, prefrontal cortex or my thinking brain to try to help me to change my experience. And what neuroscience tells us is that we can't actually talk our way into regulating our nervous systems or resolving trauma because, and I know I'm just thinking about what you said, somebody who doesn't know it, you know, my neighbor maybe who knows nothing about this. So I'm trying to simplify this, but, but that really simplistically, if someone was to say to themselves, you know, I don't know why I'm so nervous right now. I, I, I'm maybe I'm going to meet this friend for the first time or going on this date or doing this presentation. I'm safe. There's nothing to be nervous about. And I try to talk myself out of that nervousness and it doesn't work. Perhaps I even get more nervous. That's because we're trying to speak a verbal language to a part of our system that doesn't understand the verbal language. So my work is to speak the language it does understand, which is somatics or the felt sense. So if someone, let's just say they were to come to a session with you, what could they expect versus something like talk therapy or talk coaching? Yeah. So oftentimes I spent a, a decade in talk therapy myself. There's probably people who have, who are listening um, or, or more cognitive coaching. And you know, when let's say you're sitting down in a session or I'm sitting down in a session and let's say I'm talking to my therapist or practitioner, and I'm talking about something that was difficult and what what I start to do as I'm talking about it is I start to get pretty activated or revved up. And I'm like, you know, and then they said this, and then they started yelling and I just felt small. And, and then I notice myself getting anxious as I'm talking about it. And oftentimes what will happen in one of those sessions is I'm just, the activation is coming up, but I'm not really doing anything about it. I'm just talking about why, you know, it wasn't my fault, let's say. 
I had therapists for years tell me, because I have a complex trauma history, Sarah, it wasn't your fault what happened. And if it was someone else, could you see there's nothing they should be ashamed of? And I would say, yeah, yeah, I get that, but I don't feel it. And so in my work, when someone in any somatic trauma work, when someone comes in and let's say they're going to tell me about something that was challenging, my job is to, to understand the physiology of our beautiful mammalian organism and notice when activation comes into their body. So it might, you know, when someone's talking about something difficult, I have a client who had a near-death experience recently in the water and I said, tell me about the moment that day started, or what do you remember first? And they would, might say it was on a Monday and I would, and I would notice what's happening in their system as they said that. And I'd probably stop them and say, Hey, what are you noticing right now? And they might say something like my throat just got tight and my, my shoulders just went up. How, let's see if we can be with that. And the reason why we want to do that, so I'm not going to, let's not get hijacked by this story, is because trauma is an overwhelm of stimulation in my body, our bodies. And so I'm out of control and I'm overwhelmed. So in somatic healing, in order to get rid of that energy that's locked in time, we have to do it in a titrated way, which means kind of like if there was a spout, spigot, a, a drip at a time, so that I can be with a tolerable amount of activation and if I let my system do it, it's going to discharge that or let it go. And then that is gone forever. And so we chip away at it in a small, small bits at a time where we can still have the steering wheel of our experience so we don't get overwhelmed. And there's lots of other things. I do parts work and lots of other things. But in general, to understand somatic work, that's what uh, we're doing. We're trying to get rid of this this uh, traumatic energy that's stored and locked in time in our systems. And that means that our system doesn't know that the past is over yet. The more I do this work, the more I am so certain that time's not linear. We travel time most of the time when we're activated, if there's not a real threat in front of us. I am so thankful. You said something specifically that I feel is really important. And it's that we often, I don't know that this is the way you said it, but I often say trauma digging People will come into my programs and are like, no, I need to fixate and focus on this one thing. And this is the thing. And this is the thing. And the more they fixate on it, the more it becomes almost bigger in their experience. There were nothing that nothing else is able to be seen. And so you talking about this in a different way, is that something you noticed in your own journey, 10 years trying to heal from complex trauma and talk therapy? Yeah, for sure. You know, our systems are naturally pulled towards in somatic work, what's called the trauma vortex. We're negatively inclined creatures, but that's a that's actually a positive because when we were hunting and gathering, if somebody in, in the group that I lived in ate a berry that killed them, I'd want to know, don't eat that berry. So my system is going to be looking out for how do we keep ourselves alive? And so our systems will get want to go in and pull things out and, um, and, and want to go into the trauma. But if I go into a trauma, Without building my capacity to be with the activation, all that I'm doing is re-traumatizing myself. Peter Levine, one of my mentors and the creator of Somatic Experiencing, always says, do less, it does more. And that is so true. If we want to go faster, we have to go slower. Um, because remember, trauma, any traumatic experience, it's not actually the event. It's this is so overwhelming. I don't know how to process it. I do a lot of parts work. 
and inner child work. And a lot of people come to me and they're so apprehensive because they'll say things like, I did this other thing where someone had me start journaling about the bad thing that happened to me when I was a child. And all of a sudden it was just so overwhelming. And then I fell out of it and, and like I was in outer space and so confused. And then I, it was really scary. And I say to them, first, I'm so sorry that happened. And what happened in that experience that wasn't okay at all was someone was active, telling the young part, hey, let's relive what happened to you, but I'm not going to support the adult part of you to know how to make this experience different for you or to build your capa- the adult part's capacity to be able to navigate it for you. So in essence, you're just going to have the same experience that you had back then, which doesn't actually bring healing or resolution. So, so trauma work is just very, very different approach to it so that we can, in essence, the goal is I've built enough capacity which simply means I can be with this activation and not become engulfed. So I can be with it and not become engulfed. Kind of think about like if I was to be with an eight-year-old child who was having a lot of activation, for me and for maybe other listeners, that probably wouldn't terrify you, right? I know no one could respond, but you think about that, right? I wouldn't get, if they were saying, I'm so scared, there's a monster in the closet. I wouldn't say, oh my gosh, you're so right. Maybe there is a monster in the closet. We aren't okay. But what happens with our own work is that a young part says, oh my gosh, maybe someone is going to hurt me, or maybe it's not safe to use my voice, or I have to hide, or, or it's not safe to be in my sexuality or whatever it is. And then adult us goes out the window and it's like the other, another seven-year-old part says, oh my gosh, you're so right. This is so scary. So in my work, it's how do I help you to become that parent that you're, or competent protector that you would be for another child who said, I think there's a monster so that you can hold space for the young part of you getting a disconfirming experience, just like we would with someone else. I love that you said the, like a protective person, because in my experience, building my own capacity around feeling anger for me has been particularly difficult and overwhelming. Like this is big. Oh, I don't know what to do. It feels like something bad is going to happen. And I think people have anger is really common, I think for that experience, but it's also true of sometimes joy or excitement or a number of other feelings. And so bringing the adult self in is such an interesting play whenever we're talking about these different parts of ourselves. So I'm just thinking for those listening, like parts being, maybe you can explain what a part might mean. Yeah. Uh, and I, and then I would love to, I know we have such limited time. I think I could spend all day with you, but I do want to say something about healthy aggression. I think it's important. Please. I don't know how your women, your listeners identify, but um, for, for lots of people, Culturally, of course, for for folks that identify as women or are part of the BIPOC community or LGBTQIA communities, healthy aggression has been something that's been not safe. So I just want to, if it's okay to say something about that. Um, But um, uh, parts, sorry, I was thinking about healthy aggression. So parts, Uh, we all have so many different parts of us inside, you know, are just in terms of younger parts, our bodies grow in age. But when we've experienced trauma, remember that gets locked in time. It's as if that part of us is stuck in the perpetual experience that they were in. And we have a threat detector in our brain stems called neuroception. It's a threat detector. Its whole job is to look for cues of safety, danger, safety, danger. It does it every single millisecond of our lives, which just 
puts me in awe of our species, how extraordinary that is. And if it sees anything that reminds those young parts of, of what they experienced, all of a sudden, it's like that young part embodies our system. And they've traveled time. I'm no longer in the here and now. Let's say uh, a, um, a colleague is going to look over some of my work and they send an email back and say, oh, I have some notes. I'd rather not uh, email it to you. Let's talk on the phone. And if my threat detector is reminded of me being told I'm unworthy, I'll never amount to anything, et cetera. Now, all of a sudden, it's like a 10-year-old is present in my experience. So we have young parts, like 8, 10, 12, all our different ages. And then we also have protector parts. So parts of us that their job is to make sure that we are safe. And what they'll look to is, how did I need to respond in my childhood? Oh, become small, collapse become invisible, definitely don't have access to your healthy aggression, um, mirror back exactly what they want to see, and then you'll be safe. Um, and, and many other parts of us too, but maybe just in the most simplistic way to describe parts. And, and an analogy for, or not an analogy, an example for listeners, I live in Los Angeles and there is just so much traffic here. And I see people's young parts all the time. Like, let's say in, in traffic, someone in front of someone else forgets to use their blinker. You know, not, not the best in driving, but it happens. And the person behind them, their threat detector goes off and is reminded of, of their, their parents who never saw them and never uh, respected them. Um, and all of a sudden, they start screaming and get out of their car and are berating this person in front of them who really didn't do anything wrong to them, so wrong, right? And what may be happening there is that person's 13-year-old part is so angry about being emotionally or physically abused by their parent. And they're finally saying, I'm safe to say, I'm angry at you and how dare you do this to me? And they have no idea. They think it's actually about the person in front of them. I have seen so much in the last year projection from the things happening with COVID and all of the social justice movements happening and people feeling restricted, very many young parts coming online saying, no, I'm finally saying no. And it's, it is interesting to watch this happening that sometimes the, the reaction seems so old, seems so aggressive in comparison to what's being asked. Yes. However, knowing like, oh, this is a part that maybe never got to say no, who finally feels strong enough to say no, but is saying no in a context that it might not be the same. Um, well, I guess I'm curious, maybe I'm going to ask you before speaking to this. Do you think that, that actually helps resolve mm. some of the inner child's pain by getting to say it even where it's not appropriate? Mm, yeah, so it's a great question. So that kind of ties in the healthy aggression thing I wanted to speak on. We think of the term aggression as a really dangerous and unhealthy thing because for many of us, we've experienced people's unhealthy aggression. And unhealthy aggression is the result of someone who's experienced trauma. And instead of internalizing their trauma, I'm really bad or I'm you know not safe in the world, it's they're bad. And, and I, the only way I know how to relieve myself of this is by harming other people. I'm trying to get it out. But it does that doesn't actually resolve trauma. It's simply a, a moment of, you can think of it kind of like 
catharsism. I've lost the steering wheel. I'm acting out. And then usually there's a shame response after. So that's how a lot of us have experienced aggression. Healthy aggression, though, is something that we come into the world with. And it's something as early as toddlers, we begin to um, exhibit. And that looks like a child. Let's say I had a child and I said, hey, would you like to um, hug Madison goodbye? And the child says, no, no. And I would say, great. That's so good. You know that. What do you think? Like, what about a wave or maybe a high or you actually don't have to do any of that? Well, it'd be think you would feel good for you. I think a wave. Great. Let's do that. So that child's healthy aggression was saying, no, I don't want you near me. And what most of us had the experience of was someone saying, that's not very nice. Wow. They came all this way to see you. Now what happens? My system learns, oh, this is a shameful thing to do. Don't communicate your truth. Don't say no when something isn't okay for you. Say yes and override it so that you're safe. And that's a minimal experience of it, right? For many of us, we had experiences where if a parent was yelling at us and I said, don't yell at me, that's not okay to talk to me that way. I don't care if I'm your child. You can't do that. That would have been met with something that wouldn't have been very good. So we, and then if in more extreme cases of of abuse, It would have been very unsafe to exhibit our healthy aggression. So our systems love us so much that they learn how to shut that down. And we can shut it down so much. And and I'll give some just a, a personal example of this. So much so that we really have no affect or connection to what happened. I remember I used, I was sexually abused my whole childhood and a lot of neglect. And when I would tell people my story, they would often have tears in their eyes or they would, if they loved me, they'd be angry. They didn't even have to love me to be angry. And I didn't feel anything. I just thought, well, I don't know. I don't, I don't feel what you're feeling. Um, but I know what happened, sort of. I blocked a lot out. And that was my protective response. It wouldn't have been safe to have access to that. So later in our healing, when we come into safety, It is such a celebration when I'm working with someone and they say, I'm starting to get ticked off about stuff. Like my partner did this thing and I I was really annoyed. This is weird. What's happening here? And oftentimes I describe it as going from, it's like we're in hibernation to we become the lioness. And and oftentimes in becoming the lioness or the lion, um, it it can feel like I'm losing the steering wheel. This is a lot because there's a lot of activation involved in healthy aggression. And also my reaction might not match the circumstance because I'm just coming into this. And part of our work is to, if I, if the barometer goes from one extreme, no access to the other extreme, this is so much. And then our work is how do we come back to the middle? And so Um, that's a really natural part of the healing process, but we really want to work with someone to help us, number one, to help us to be able to be with healthy aggression without it becoming so overwhelming. There's probably listeners who can relate to this. I remember when I would say to someone like, hey, that really wasn't okay what happened. Maybe probably exactly that tone of voice. I would later think, oh my gosh, I was yelling. I was like out of control. That felt like so much. And the person might've said like, you know, I mean, I could tell that you were firm in that, but my experience of it, because I wasn't used to being with that energy, it felt like I was a volcano. And so I just assumed 
did any, does everyone experience it that way? Like that I just look like a, you know, a tornado. Um, and that's really normal as we're coming into healthy aggression. And we want to work with someone so that we can really get clear on, does my reaction match the circumstance? And more often than not, when we're coming into our uh, embodied experience and doing this work, a lot of times our reaction doesn't match the circumstance. And if that's so, doesn't mean that what my partner did wasn't, you know, not okay, but it means that a majority of what's happening is actually me responding to the past in a way that I wasn't safe to respond to the past when the past was happening. I love that you framed this in the partnership because I know that that has certainly been safe, uh, like certainly been like true for me as I've become more and more safe in my relationship. But I'm like, oh man, like suddenly things have gotten messier. Suddenly things are like more difficult and I have this information and that's, I'm really grateful to have this information of, wow, as you know, as I'm becoming more safe and feeling more safe, it's actually a beautiful thing for these parts to come back online. These parts that say no, or actually that's not okay, or I'm annoyed or whatever it is. I'm curious how you would describe for people listening what it looks like to communicate that because I've certainly been in situations where I've overreacted and it was, it was growth for me to have a reaction, however, caused harm by having a reaction. And so I'm curious how you support people in navigating that because it's certainly been something I've dealt with. And then also I know when it happens, it thinks, oh my God, like, am I more broken? Is something going wrong? And it can kind of spiral you back to that shame place. Absolutely. That's a great question. Well, first, I think this is an important thing to say uh, to listeners is that if anyone's listening and you get into a relationship in the first, you know, six months to a year, like, I feel really great in this. This feels good. This is wonderful. This My partner or partners are wonderful and amazing. And then something happens where maybe we move in together. Maybe or it's been more time, more significant time. They're starting to become my primary person. So then what happens there is that threat detector I mentioned before, it says primary person, primary person. Let's look to this receptacle of past information we have on primary person. Oh, primary person or primary people. Okay, with primary people, um, you aren't safe. They're going to take up all the space. You don't get to have needs. They have all the needs. They're hypercritical of you. Um, you, you know, and so on and so forth, right? They look to our primary childhood caregivers and how we were related to. And then what starts to happen, even though we might be saying, oh my gosh, this is exactly what I want. I love this person. They're extraordinary. And the young parts start to say, oh, well, I know about primary person and I know what you can expect from them. And I know how we have to respond. But you know what? I'm a little safer now. So I'm going to make sure that that they, um, uh, let's say they don't take away my truth. So I'm not going to even allow for that to happen because I was gaslit my whole childhood or my childhood caregiver abandoned me. So I was feeling so safe and trusting. And all of a sudden, a partner's done nothing but in, in really that I can not trust them around. And now all of a sudden, I'm like, want to look through their phone and see what they're doing. And I feel out of control. Why is that happening? Because the young parts are saying, wait a minute, this was anything like those early childhood connections. Those people left. We're getting closer to them. This person's going to leave. 
how do we protect against that? So I want listeners to know if you start to feel after a while, I feel more out of control in this relationship. I feel more confused about what in the world is happening. How human of you, how normal, and this can absolutely change. And so when a rupture occurs in a relationship, a rupture is a disconnection of any kind. We've misattuned, we've missed one another. What happens is in that experience is that our self-protective parts are no longer seeing our partner as our person. They're seeing our partner as, in terms of evolution, the lion that's going to try to kill me or the parent that did the thing. So I'm going to try to self-protect from them. And so what I, I do uh, lots of nervous system regulation work, but when we are in a rupture, unless we have a secure attachment, we're going to go into self-protection, beautiful, brilliant response. And so I want folks listening to think about this. If I'm in a rupture and I no longer feel in the driver's seat, I don't feel present. I don't feel connected. I, um, I don't feel grounded. Um, and, and if you're wondering, like, what is this state like? Think about any good moment you've had in your life. Could have been on vacation somewhere, seeing an animal, hugging a friend. That's you feeling connected and present. It's called your ventral vagal complex. So if I don't feel that, and instead I feel something like I just shut down and I'm going to get out of here, get away from them. This is over, or I can't even feel anything. Or I go into feeling so anxious and like, what did I say? Wait, are they going to go? I don't know. We need to resolve this. Or I feel angry. Any of those things is a sign of active self-protection or dysregulation. So what we want to do, and when I'm working with couples, what we want to do is pause. We want to see if we can first regulate. And then when I'm back in the here and now, and my partner's back in the here and now, meaning I'm regulated, then we come back to resolving what happened. Otherwise, we actually, not neuroscientifically, we can't resolve it because our prefrontal cortex, our thinking brain doesn't work and um, it's not possible. So we want to pause, regulate, and then ask ourselves when I'm back in the here and now, did my reaction match the circumstance? Did that match the circumstance? I, um, just a quick example, I, uh, as a kid, had to cook my own meals very early, like and I was in kindergarten. And so when I, I love cooking, I grew up watching Julia Child, one of my favorite things. And that's so I would say to my partners, I, I want to cook for you. And the longer we were in a relationship, maybe it wasn't like they were right in the kitchen with me because they were doing something else or whatever. And in that experience of, I wanted to cook for them. I really love cooking, but all of a sudden, as I was cooking and I was alone in the kitchen, I got so angry, like filled with this bubbling almost rage where I was ruminating and the thoughts were saying things like they don't care about you. And look, you're just like serving them. Cause I also had to, to cook for my family as a child. And, and I didn't understand at the time that my reaction didn't match the circumstance. So I was so angry by the time I put the food on the table, my partner would have just been like, I wish you didn't like, maybe we shouldn't have you cook. Like what's happening here. And I didn't understand that my reaction didn't match the circumstance, but later looking at it or listeners, you hearing this, you can see, right? That activation doesn't really match what's happening. And when that when, that's a clue for us that it's historical, meaning it's also about the past. So I would invite you to get curious in that experience after when you're regulated, if you ask yourself when you're dysregulated, those parts are going to say, yes, this matches the circumstance because it did match one circumstance. It was really appropriate to like in this example, when I was a kid. 
So I would ask myself, what does this remind me of? And, oh, it does kind of feel like what I had to do as a kid. And then when we're regulated, we ask ourselves, what would have that part have needed? And, and what would have been nicer? And it might be, you know what, an adult to come in and say, hey, I've got this. Kids aren't supposed to be doing this. Why don't you go play? And can I embody that and imagine that happening in, an, in a visceral way? What we're doing there is giving our younger parts a disconfirming experience. So we're giving them what they've been longing for. And then after all that happens, then we want to say when we're regulated, what is the unmet need or what is the complaint in the partnership? So what's actually about the present? And it might be, you know what, it would be really great if my, my partner to ask them, can you be somewhere in the kitchen area? And can we talk while I'm cooking? Because I realize this reminds me of this really painful thing. And if you could help me do that, it'll help make that really different for me. And then my partner would probably say, I'm so sorry you experienced that. I don't want you to experience that. Yes, of course I can do that thing. So I like to think of partnerships as I am the, or we are the, our job is to be the primary parent for our young parts. And we're asking our partner to be the secondary parent. But as listeners are hearing, see how I kind of advocated as adult me for the young parts. I checked in with the young parts and said, hey, what do you actually need? Okay, I'm going to communicate that. I'm going to give it to you. And then I'm also going to communicate it to my partner. And they can help support us to do that too, and vice versa. But most of the time, what's happening in romantic partnerships is the young parts of us. There is no adult me. There is no adult them. And the young parts are looking for a partner to rescue them, which isn't actually possible. Oh, my goodness. So much of what you just said makes me feel really excited. Um, First of all, you saying that when um, that young part of us comes online and it feels urgent or whatever, whatever the intense feeling is. And we're like, no, this is happening now. If there's activation, then it probably looks like, how do I want to say this? Like if there's activation, it's not the time to assess if it's from the past or present, but finding tools to get regulated, regulating ourselves and then assessing and then looking, and then maybe doing the journaling work because so many people love journaling and talking it out with friends and talking and talking, but kind of reminds me of what you said earlier, where it can just like spiral you up into the trauma. That's right. Like if someone was to, if I was in that kitchen and I said, I'm going to journal about this, what would be happening? (laughs) Eight-year-old part of me saying, this is really messed up and this isn't okay. I'm so tired of this. I got to get out of this home. I hate this person. And that's really appropriate for the eight-year-old part to feel that way. But but I would think that I would think that was actually me feeling that about my partner. And you see, in that, I miss the opportunity to actually give the young part what they're needing, which mm-hmm. is a safe adult who can say, I see you, that was never okay. Mm-hmm. And I'm here now to make it different for you. Um, so yes, we want to regulate first because our system is going to say, yeah, that matches the circumstance. Every <laughs> I was uh, on mute chuckling as you were talking about this because I've, I've, I have a very similar memory of my partner invited someone over. And this person actually reminds me a lot of the person who abused me as a child and has, you know, some of this, uh, actually some red flags that I should have maybe set boundaries around. But at the time I didn't have that capacity to be like, oh, this is what's going on. I got full on. My young person came online and I was literally cooking them dinner and saying, I'm cooking dinner now, but I'm not going to do this again. And I'm like, yeah. I'm laughing like they're like, we wish you hadn't have cooked. 
<laughs> we wish you hadn't have done this at all. And it did, it took actually her leaving in a couple of weeks to fully process the situation. And I was like, oh, this reminded me of the past. And that was accurate. However, freaking out about cooking dinner was not actually what was going on. Yeah, exactly. Absolutely. And then gave the opportunity too for you and your partner, for, for you to also be able to say to your partner, here is what I think I could help me in this situation in the future. And that might be, you know, I, when I work with partners, just having cues of safety for each other, which might be, could you just squeeze my hand twice? And that means you know that this is hard for me and you're saying, I've got you on right here. Hmm. You know, so there's so many things we can do to create beautiful cues of safety in our partnerships. And it's a, uh, I really believe romantic partnerships, like, yes, romance is really fun. But the, I think the deepest purpose of them is to help us come home to ourselves more and more. Mm-hmm. And, um, and that's what's possible in our relationships. Yeah. There's something that you said in there, Sarah, about being your own primary caregiver first. And I think that that is uh, one very mature and sovereign to have come online because you become the adult, you become the self parent, but also knowing that it doesn't, if your partner doesn't mean your partner can't support you and meeting that or friends or other people, but that they aren't the primary way that these childhood needs are going to get met now. Yeah. I think there's been, it's interesting about, I love that mental health has become so um, buzzy. And, and there's always a lot of in that, when that happens, a lot of misunderstanding about things and, and we're not supposed to be solitary creatures. We are animals like every other animal, and we're meant to be in community and connection. We actually need one another. And so we want to need one another. That's a, that's an important part of being human. The work is how can I be the primary, as I said, primary parent and can I bravely ask my partner or close friends to be the secondary parent? And I say brave because I often think about this, like viewers can't, listeners can't see me, but almost like think about holding out our hands, like a child holding their, looking up and holding up their hands, like pick me up, see me. This is such a vulnerable position to be in. And for many of us, myself included, it sounds like you too, and probably lots of people listening, that was met with someone who either wasn't there, wasn't safe, shamed us in some way. And so when we come into relationship and I'm saying, I need you, it's like holding out my hand from the adult part. And and so I used to think like the strength is go it alone because that's what I had to do my whole life. But real bravery and strength is saying, and I actually need others to see me, to support me. And so we want to have um, uh, flexibility in both self-regulation. I can regulate my own nervous systems and co-regulating, connecting with other people. So much of this is bringing up, I'm really curious to talk about attachment with you. And Whenever I got into my current partnership, it became very clear to me that I was not securely attached. Previously, I had been married for many, many years. And looking back, I'm like, it felt so safe because there was no depth connection there. And that was very familiar to me to be like, oh, we just kind of coexist. You know, this is fine. But my healing allowed me to be ready for, you know, real connection. And in that, it really exposed 
to me that I was not securely attached. I thought that I was, and that was not the case and have been on a two year journey now of exploring that. And I'm really curious, as far as I understand, there's four different kinds of attachments and was wondering if you can talk about what attachment is like where it begins. And then when it doesn't go according to like the most ideal circumstances, what can happen? Yeah, what a wonderful question. And I'm so glad that people are curious about attachment. So um, there, there are four primary attachment styles. And this is the way when you think like, what does attachment style mean? What does attachment mean? It means how we relate to other humans. How do we relate to them? And by the way, this really also affects how do I relate to money? How do I relate to material things? How do I relate to the world? Uh, are all very intertwined and connected. So what affects how we relate to other humans? Because, you know, not everyone relates to other humans the same. Well, the way that we relate to other humans is directly indicative of how we were related to by our earliest childhood caregivers. And this, this work of attachment just puts me in awe of everyone listening right now. You are not broken. Your system is working exactly as it should. I know you might feel like you are. I felt like I was too. And I want you to know that it is intricate. It is perfectly working. And when you were a child, you learned how to adapt to your caregivers, maybe not being able to attune with you. And that then affects our adult relationships. So what that looks like is when we're born, babies don't have the capacity to self-regulate when we're born. And that means that when a baby is in distress, they can't calm themselves down. So everyone, I want you to think about that for a moment. That is a very vulnerable way to come into the world, right? That if I am in distress, I have no, literally no capacity to change my experience. So what am I looking for? I am relying on the people that brought me into this world that they can do that. Their job is to do that for me. And for many of us, because unfortunately, this work isn't taught in schools and our world isn't focused on this work, unfortunately, people just have children and their traumas passed down, their traumas passed down, and their dysregulated nervous systems are passed down. So let's say, though, first, I want to talk about, let's say, and I want to preface by saying a lot of people listening, you may not have had this experience. I didn't either. So just know you aren't alone. But let's say, or, or, or a secure attachment matter is I'm born and I'm in distress and I have caregivers who are regulated in their nervous systems. That means they're really in the driver's seat of their experience. So I'm in distress. I'm in my sympathetic nervous system. That's You've probably heard that referred to as fight or flight, but I'm crying, I'm scared or I'm overwhelmed or I'm hungry or something. And my caregiver who's regulated, they're present, they are cued to my nervous system. And all we have mirror neurons, meaning nervous systems read each other. So their nervous system says, my child is in distress and their or, or my grandchild or whatever, or this foster child. And so their nervous system dips into their sympathetic nervous system. And that's what attunement is. So they're meeting me where I am, but they're anchored in regulation. So they're not getting swept up by it. And they pick up the baby and we humans naturally know how to regulate. If you, anyone who has children or you've ever held a baby or watched someone hold a baby, you pick a baby up and you naturally start to sway. 
And you pat on your back and you might start humming. It's okay. I'm right here. And what am I doing? I'm saying, I hear your nervous system and let me help you come back into regulation. That's what co-regulation looks like. That's what a secure attachment looks like. It looks like the caregiver is consistently able to do that over and over and over. So what does that show the child? I know that I'm safe to connect with others. I can count on them. And um, are two things. That doesn't mean the caregiver got it right every time. So they might run distracted, oops, and then they come back into connection. So it's not that they have to be perfect, but they have to be consistent. And then as we become a toddler, that caregiver knows that they're safe in the world. So they're sending the message that I'm safe in the world. So when I'm a toddler and I'm learning to walk, that looks like, so children, when they're learning to walk, they're always looking for their caregivers to tell them cues of safety or danger. So the child is about to walk out of the room and they look back at the parent or the caregiver and the caregiver, if they're securely attached, says, you're doing so great, keep going. And of course they follow them, but they give them space. What is the caregiver teaching the child? You are not only safe with me, but you're also safe with yourself. We can be close and we can have distance and that creates a secure attachment. So they can attune with me. When I feel sad, they match that. They don't say, any listeners here, if someone, if you've been sad and someone says, Hey, yeah, I'll tell you this thing great happening in my life. How misattuned, right? Wait, I'm sad and you're doing, that doesn't feel good. I don't feel seen by you. So they can really see me. They meet me where I am and they help me into regulation. And when a rupture happens, Like, let's say uh, I have a child, they pull my dog or our dog's tail. And I say, oh, that's not something we do. That really hurts. So we're not going to do that to the dog. Okay. Think about if someone pulled our hair or did something else like, you know, that wasn't okay. And if they kept doing it, I might say, okay, so we're going to have to um, go read a book right now and calm down. And then we can play with the dog later. So what is what's happened there? I've done created something called healthy shame, which is actually really appropriate. It's how we learn. I didn't say you're bad for pulling the dog's tail. I didn't say, how dare you do that? Or like, this has something to do with you. I said, we don't do that. And that actually creates a rupture. But what I've done is I then repaired it. Said, you're not bad. This is just something we don't do. Or if I'm frustrated one day and I'm like, where's your shoes? What happened? And then I realize, oh, I'm dysregulated. So I say, you know what? Mom's dysregulated. That wasn't okay at all. I'm going to take just a second to feel a little better. And then I'm going to come back and help you find your shoes. And I say, I'm so sorry I did that. How did that make you feel? And they might say, I was really angry. And I would say, that makes sense. You're really angry. What, what feels like you want to, is there anything else you want to say, etc. So what I'm showing them is ruptures are safe. Rupture doesn't mean the relationship is over. Rupture doesn't mean that I'm going anywhere. Ruptures are normal. And then we repair. And that's important to explain as I go into these other three uh, categories, because for many of us, ruptures don't feel easy. They feel hard. So let's say in my childhood, I didn't get to have that experience. When I was born into this, into the world, and I couldn't regulate my nervous system, I had a caregiver who also couldn't regulate their nervous system. And they were in their sympathetic, let me give an example of what, this is what, um, one example of how we can develop something called an anxious attachment. So my caregiver's nervous system is in their sympathetic state. They don't feel safe alone in the world. They don't feel safe inside. So when I'm dysregulated 
as a baby, they get dysregulated too. So we're both just really dysregulated. And the only way that my caregiver feels safe is if we are so close and we have to be together. They don't want to put me down. They don't think I'm going to be okay in the world. We have to be together all the time in order to be safe. And so they send the message to me, I'm not okay in the world on my own. Or my caregiver, let's say they're really identified with their young parts. So I don't realize that as a kid, of course, but they're scared of the world. So what do I learn? Well, if I can make sure they're not scared, like I know when they feel good, how can I keep making them feel good? So if I behave in a certain way, or maybe I'm funny all the time, that'll make them happy. And if they're regulated, they can help me regulate. So good, cool. I need to keep doing that. So I'm really on the lookout for how they might not be okay. And I'll do whatever it takes to make sure they are okay. This analogy of walking out the room with the child is I go to walk out the room and the caregiver says, oh, don't go without me. You're not going to be okay. You're going to fall. Be careful. Hold on. Wait for me. What's the message? Oh, I can't go into the world alone. I need this person or to be okay. So we brilliantly adapt as a baby. And I learn I need to do these things to make sure they're regulated enough that they can help me regulate, which means I need to not be focused on me, but overly focused on them. What do I need to do to make sure that they're okay? And then how does this look? I didn't get to the secure and how does this look in our adult relationships? But in this example, what does this look like in our adult relationships? It looks like a rupture occurs. And I like to think of uh, a relationship, an analogy I use is imagine between you and another person is like a giant rope, like a rope on a cruise ship. And if I'm securely attached, I had that whole experience in, in my childhood with my caregiver. It's if a rupture happens, it's like, a hundred strands drop, but there's still a rope. So I'm not sweating it. Yep. We have this rupture. We're, we love each other. We're going to be totally fine. I'm not even dysregulated about it. We'll resolve it after work today. Right. But for many of us, that's not the experience. Now, if I'm more anxiously attached, it feels like this giant rope with thousands of strands that we've built over the course of years together, feels like the whole rope has been dropped and my partner dropped the rope. And if I'm anxiously attached, what do I need? I need that person to be close with me. We don't have the rope. So what am I going to do? I'm going to pick up their end of the rope and I'm going to say, please pick up this rope. Please pick up this rope. What I need you to pick up this rope. So what I'm going to do is go into this sympathetic place and I'm going to have racing thoughts and blinders on. I can't focus on anything else, but getting them to pick up the rope. So that might look like saying, you know, before I said, hey, it wasn't okay when you did this thing. And all, now I'm saying, who cares? I don't care. It doesn't even matter. Let's just forget we even had that conversation. I'm not even upset anymore. Will you just pick up the rope? Let's just be okay. Let's just be to get together and connected. I really need us to do that. Or um, I am saying to them, like, we need to talk about it now. We can't talk about it later. We have to talk about it now because I don't feel safe in the world by myself. Or if my partner says they're going to be home at five and now it's five. 15, my system won't just assume, I'm sure something came up, they're fine. My system will say, uh-oh, what's happening? Well, did they not tell me the truth? Are they not coming home? All because I need to get them close to be safe. Now, we'll quickly go through the other two. So if in childhood I'm born and my caregivers are dangerous, they're harmful or they're not there, they're neglectful. When I'm dysregulated, right? Children can't, babies can't regulate. My system has nobody to look for or nobody safe. 
So our brilliant adaptive systems say, I can't have you be with the pain of this activation. You won't be able to keep developing. So you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to cloak you in something called your dorsal vagal complex. And this is our state of immobility or shutdown or collapse. You can think of it like a bear hibernating. And when we're here, we feel numb. We feel apathetic. We feel disconnected. We learn to go it alone. Like we build this fortress of an island around ourselves because my system is saying either people aren't there or they're not safe. It's also not safe to be with this activation. So I'm just going to shut all of that down so I don't have to feel it. It's a brilliant response that we learn before we can tie our shoes. And so then I get into a relationship. And first of all, getting closer in a relationship is really scary because why? I don't know what it's like for people to be close to me or, and they were dangerous. So as people get, get close, my system wants to pull away. And when there's a rupture, remember that, that rope we have between us, it feels like I've actually, it doesn't feel like the whole rope is dropped. I have dropped the whole rope and I got to get out of here because people are dangerous. So what I'm going to do when there's a rupture in my relationship is I go blank. I don't need, I can't talk about this now. We have to talk about it later. Like if someone sends me a text and says, Hey, we need to talk. <gasps> if I'm avoidant, my system says I need to chuck my phone in a river. I don't want to, I can't talk to you. This is too scary. This is so much. And then we just shut down and we want to go in a car and go away and like, uh, let's not and ever talk about this or get close again. And this, and, and that there's two negative connotations or one for each of these attachment styles. When we're with someone who's avoidant, we think they don't care. They don't care about this relationship. They just want to get out of here. And that is so opposite of the truth. It's that their system has experienced people being dangerous or not, or not available. And if someone's more anxious, the negative connotation is you're so needy, which is also not true. So I just like to name that because there's a lot of shame around those things. And by the way, the most common combination is someone who's anxious, someone who's avoidant. So when a rupture happens, the anxious person is saying, pick up the rope. And the avoidant person is saying, I got to get away from the rope. And the further they get away, the more close the anxious person gets and so on and so forth. And it's a beautiful opportunity for the person who's avoidant to step towards the relationship and for the person who's anxious to begin tolerating, not going towards right away, but instead stepping towards self-regulation. Can I show myself I'm safe with myself now? And then the last attachment style is called disorganized. And this is from caregivers. When we had caregivers who were sometimes safe and sometimes dangerous, how confusing. They sometimes could regulate with me and were safe. And then they sometimes abused me or were emotionally abusive or physically abusive or otherwise. How confusing. And that means I grew up in a chaotic environment in my childhood. So when people get close, I push them away. It is a reflex. It's not, I'm not wanting to do that. You know, I'm in a relationship with someone. We're having a lovely dinner. Hey, this could lead to a, a physical intimacy later. It's so nice. And all of a sudden I get annoyed by something and I pick a fight with them. And I'm like, I don't know why you always do that thing. And they're like, where did that come from? We were just getting along so well. And now I, there's a huge fight happening. And later I think, what happened there? Well, that's because they were coming closer. And my system was saying, I'm here to protect you. People who are like caregivers, so close to you, are going to hurt you. So I'm going to help get them away. And so our job is, can I start allowing people to come close? So with those 
Attachment styles, we're all a combination. We generally have one that's more predominant. And if we're anxiously attached, if you're listening and say, that's me, I think I relate to that. I want you to see if you can focus on self-regulating. That means, are there things that I can do by myself that help me feel a little more here and a little more safe? And at first, they might not feel great. Like, I'd much rather go for a hike with somebody else than on my own. Yeah. So I'm not saying don't go on hike with others. We need other people, but we want to actually be even in our ability to self-regulate and co-regulate. So it looks like, can I feel into even just a moment of that? If there's a rupture, okay, I'm going to go for a walk or I'm going to pet my dog and see if I can feel a little more here. And then I'm going to step towards co-regulation, maybe co-regulating with a different person first before my partner. Um, If I'm more avoidant, what's my work? It's not to work on self-regulation. We probably got that down. We want to work on co-regulation. So can I tolerate the discomfort of stepping towards people and making a plan with a friend and tolerating that you might want to cancel it and still see if you can follow through with the plan? That's showing and same with disorganized. That's showing our systems I'm safe to rely on others and to connect with them. I know I just talked for a long time, but uh, I want to make sure I, I explain what all of those are like. I'm so appreciative that you did because I think you gave a really beautiful picture of each of them to where people, I know as you're talking, I'm like, oh, I know where my, my weight of gravity tends to go if I'm not taking care of myself. And so I'm really thankful that you named all of them and also named so beautifully an example of what security can look like because I really do believe that we can all get to a place of security no matter what happened in the first couple years of life. And so I'm curious, what would you say for the people who are listening who are like, well, I definitely didn't have ideal conditions or my parents tried the best and also something happened in our life because there's not everyone who has any of these attachment styles that aren't secure necessarily were abused. And I think that that is such a uh, misunderstanding that we can have insecure or dysregulated nervous systems and our parents maybe didn't mean to, they weren't abusing us. Absolutely. So many of us have had experiences where our parents were really loving. They were there all the time. They showed up to our spelling bee and they were at all of our stuff and did all the things and loved us so much. And they couldn't attune with us because they couldn't attune with themselves. And so I just want you to know that, um, it's okay. So there could be a lot of shame around that, like to think that about our parents, that they were doing the best they knew how because nobody taught them. And the same was probably their experience. And it is so very possible to give ourselves the childhoods that we deserved and to make up for what they weren't able to do. And that is uh, profound and powerful. We can all come towards a secure attachment in our relationships. Relationships can become safe and easy and in in flow and ruptures don't have to be hard. And I really want everyone listening to know that that's really, really possible for all of us. There has been um, a kind of sassy phrase popping in my head as of late, as I'm doing some of this attachment work, and the phrase, it's, a, it's, you know how people will say, uh, oh my goodness, I'm losing it as I'm saying it out loud. That is so funny. Um, it's like a meme that will say like, 
some of y'all have never been X, Y, or Z. And it's like kind of like throwing some shade and it's been popping in my head. Like some of you've never been the toxic person or some of you've never realized that you're the toxic person in the room that needs to like work on themselves because a lot of this self-help therapeutic journey I've noticed up until a certain point was about making sure I was setting boundaries with other, other was the toxic one. And that was actually really important in my healing journey. And then there was a moment that I was like, oh no, (laughs) I I think that I'm the common denominator here. And I tipped a little bit into through healing all of this. Oh gosh, what does it mean about me that I'm now creating these problems or like, and then shame piped up when it wasn't the extreme of other, it became the extreme of me. And although that's resolving, it can pipe up sometimes. And I see it a lot. And you you named it a little bit of like, oh, am, am I broken? Or, oh, am I the toxic person? Or what do I do if I'm realizing like I'm critical or I'm avoidant or I'm anxious and to be around people, not necessarily to resolve the attachment, but to resolve the fact that you're realizing you are the one bringing these issues into a relationship. Mm, yeah, that's a wonderful question. Um, Well, something I say all the time is that you make sense. And I love that neuroscience tells us that. I I love it because I felt like I didn't make sense for so long. And there was so much shame that I carried around my whole experience. And I really want anyone listening to know if let's say, let's say you find that in your relationships, that you are really critical of your partner, that I see that, well, not just I see it. If we look at what's really happening, there is your system is brilliantly self-protecting you. We don't want to be critical. Who want we don't we don't want to have a relationship that's hard. We don't want to be coping by uh, drinking a bottle of wine every night. We don't want to be um, looking through our partner's email and searching every single thing and 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 you know bro- bro- uh, breaking that trust. Why is that happening? It's happening because my self-protective parts are saying, you know what? The most important thing to us is to keep you alive and to keep you safe and to keep you from experiencing any of that pain ever again. So that's what we're going to do until somebody shows us that we are safe now. But until we know that, we're going to keep protecting you in the ways that we would have had to protect you in the past. And so if people are saying, I sabotage my relationships. I keep doing these same things in them. Why do I get so angry when, um, when my partner gets close to me? All of those are self-protective responses. And, and that's what science says. That, that I think I'm a pretty nice person, but this isn't just me being nice. This is what science says is true about us. And so I want us to change our orientation to it that it isn't us being um, bad, toxic, broken. It's actually an intricately and perfectly working system that our system is saying, um, I want to make sure that whatever happened in the past doesn't happen again. So I'm going to protect you against it. Um, Anything that looks familiar. And part of healing is beginning to show, not simply tell our systems that it is different now. And uh, that's what happens when we're doing attachment healing or any healing. I would love for you to paint a picture about what's possible because I know we've, we've covered so many different things today around attachment and security and developing security in the self, but I want to know 
I'm also someone who has complex trauma from childhood. And sometimes I hear, oh, well, that's not possible for me. Or, you know, it's not possible for someone like me. So I'm wondering in your experience, whether it's yourself or watching clients go through this, can you paint a picture of what's possible regardless of which attachment or what your history was like? Yes, I'd love to do that. And maybe I'll, um, I could paint a lot of pictures, but uh, maybe I'll tell you about my journey um, because I come to this work certainly as a practitioner or professional, but first as a human. And there's nothing special about my nervous system. It's just really average. All of our nervous systems are extraordinary. And I, I mentioned I have a complex trauma history. And for me, people were so dangerous that I deeply, deeply wanted to be connected. And there was this invisible, I used to describe it as an invisible wall that would get in the way of that. And I would try so hard to connect with others. And then all of a sudden I would, I couldn't text them back and I would disappear, sometimes disappear for years on people. And every day I would think I'm going to reach back out to them. I'm going to reach back out to them. And it was like this quicksand or this invisible thing that wouldn't let me do that. And I had no idea that one could even have needs. I only knew how to meet other people's needs. And I didn't really know how to let anyone see me, yet I so deeply wanted to be seen. And I went to this island where I was alone. And I remember having so much shame about that, particularly even things like on a Friday night, I remember um, feeling so much shame around taking, picking up takeout food uh, by myself. I would see people in the restaurant and think, oh my gosh, can they see and how shameful I am that I don't have anyone. There's something wrong with me. And of course, not everyone has an avoid. This is, I'm describing an avoidant attachment. Not everyone has this experience, but it doesn't matter your attachment style. I want you to know that whatever the self-protective experience is, that it can change. And so then I got to a place where I was able to maybe make a plan with someone. And the day of that plan to meet them, everything in me wanted to cancel it. It felt like the hardest thing that I could ever do, even if I really liked that person. And there was years where I would just cancel it. And then I got to a place where I could actually go, but it was so hard to get myself there. And I was exhausted after. And then in relationship, romantic partnerships, so hard to let someone see me. It felt so engulfing, so impossible. And, and it slowly began to shift where, you know, what ends up happening is that all of a sudden our system says, you know what, I think it's safe now. And then we go to make a plan with someone and we actually really want to. And then it's just easy to show up. And it's easy to say, uh, I need some help around this or to let them see my vulnerable parts. And, and it was a journey to get there. Certainly, I was married for 10 years as well in a relationship where I had, you know, transformed um, a lot, but couldn't get to where I needed to go. Um, but started with having no needs and didn't even know what they were and couldn't be close. And, um, and coming into a secure attachment in our relationships doesn't mean that the relationship like mine ended. I just want to speak to anyone's fearful, fear, fearful part that's saying, oh my gosh, if I'm healing, does that mean this has to end? No, it just means both parties need to be doing the work to come into a secure attachment. Um, but what it looks like is we come home to ourselves 
and we feel a belonging within and our young hearts are tended to. And then we can belong to others and we step into community. And for me, I, everywhere I went, um, because of my history, I felt like I didn't belong anywhere I went. I just felt like no one wants me here. I don't belong here. I'm different. And there's nowhere where, where I will belong. And then that began to shift slowly, but surely. And then we feel in a relationship safe to experience ruptures. People can let us down. We can let others down and it's not scary. And we can come back into connection. And so I, I share that because I really want everyone listening to know that, that that is what's possible for all of us. And and people who've experienced trauma or attachment wounding are the opposite of broken. They're resilient, brave, strong, resourceful, uh, extraordinary in every way. And if our systems can self-protect us, they most certainly can come back into regulation. Thank you so much for sharing that. It really paints a picture of the journey and compassion at every stage. Yeah, I, 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 you know, I, I think what I love most about the latest research and by the latest research, it's really like 25 years old, 30 years old, but is that it's, it's compassionate in, in, in its nature. And so much of the mental health model is the opposite of compassionate says things like the, like the word dysfunctional or treatment resistant depression or fill in the blank of something else that's not a very kind or even accurate way of describing someone. So um, so that's what's true about each person uh, and each person listening. I appreciate that so much. I'm someone who through my also around 10 year journey with therapy now and going through so much healing, I've realized that there are very few labels that feel really good to be identifying with at this point because of how a lot of the labels felt like they were giving me a diagnosis of this is how you are, as opposed to being a living, breathing organism who's changing and growing, who may have a tendency, which is why I appreciate attachment is this is a tendency and there's a movement towards health versus like phrases like narcissist or codependent. These are just who you are. Yeah. They feel quite entrapping. So I just appreciate the spaciousness and humanity that you brought to this conversation. Oh, thank you. And, and it's been such a real honor to be here with you and, and to be here with uh, everyone listening. Is there anything that I know we had so much more that we probably could have spoken about? I feel like I could ask you questions all day, but is there anything that feels in the ether that needs to be tethered into the conversation here at the end? Maybe just this, that in... You know, for so many of us, we've had experiences where our truth was denied. Certainly, if we have experienced uh, complex trauma, it's an experience of our truth being denied, especially if that was in our family normalizing abnormal things. But even with parents that are doing the best they could uh, and weren't intentionally trying to harm us, may have said things like, stop crying. There's nothing to cry about. What is the message there? Your truth is wrong. The truth is wrong. You shouldn't feel that way. And so we might find ourselves in relationships being so confused about what is my truth or asking everybody for advice because we just don't seem to know. And I want you to know that your truth lives in your body. And so the next time that you experience be feeling something that's good, something you'd register as good means you're probably regulated. You're probably here. 
And when that happens and you say, that's good, that's nice. I want you to simply ask yourself, and what's true in this moment for me? Hmm. What's true? Is it, I need some rest. And then I want you to ask yourself, what tells me that? Oh, I just feel my eyes are heavy and I feel uh, my body needs this, needs a hug. Oh, excellent. So what we're doing is we're getting curious about what our embodied experience is telling us is true that we oftentimes were talked out of or we couldn't be with. And when we're regulated is when we know we're true or I feel lonely. What tells me that? So get curious about it. And what is it like to embody my truth? I really wish my partner and I could do five minute check-ins. What tells me that? Because when I think about it, I feel excited and happy and joyful and connected. Wow, that sounds a lot like truth. Mm. So that's something I would invite everyone to explore. Not asking yourself when I say this, like you're regulated and what's true. Not like, so what's true about you needing to leave this relationship or be in it? That's going to be too big for now and probably activating. But instead... Just in this moment, on this day, what's true? Maybe you're thirsty. What tells me that? And that's how we come back into our embodied experience. Because, And I share that because in our relationships, so often we can be really confused about what our truth is. Mm, I love how practical that is and how accessible that information is. Like, I'm hungry. How do I know? Very yes. easy, very accessible. Yes. One of my friends, um, Dr. Hillary, Hillary McBride teaches also on embodiment and something she'll say is like, when you realize you have to pee, you know, you're embodied, like you're just that you're, you're embodied because you can hear yes. these signals. And I felt like that was so compassionate that it doesn't mean that you have to be dancing on Instagram or doing anything that you're not normally doing, but just, Oh, are you hungry? How do you know? That's exactly right. That's what it means to be embodied. That's the opposite of trauma and that's healing emotion. Mm, so good. Are you ready for some rapid fire? Yes, I would love them. Awesome. We have spoken so much about the areas of expertise that you have. And I'm here at the end. I'm so happy just to center you as the person, Sarah. <laughs> so Sarah, what is your spiritual background? Uh, I am incredibly spiritual. It's really a center of my life. I believe healing is holy work. And, and I think a lot of religions get it wrong because healing and holy work is just coming home to ourselves and healing is coming home to ourselves. Mm. And so it's uh, been, been a guy, I think it saved my life as a child. And, um, and it's a big part of every moment of my day. When I look out the window and I see a squirrel playing, that is spirituality to me. I know that we're connected and we belong to one another. And it's, um, yeah, anyway, it's very center central in my life. Beautiful. How do you know when you know? Um, because when I'm in ventral and in a grounded place, my soul says yes. And my body says yes. And that goes back to what I said a moment ago to everyone else that it's not in your head. It lives in your body. And when you, when I come into a yes, I feel grounded in it and I feel sturdy and steady and uh, solid. Beautiful. What identities have you had to let go of to own your fullness today? One that I said to myself, my young parts, and I wish I, they could have known then was that they're good. So I guess the opposite of that is that I'm not bad. And that was probably the most the most powerful uh, one, the most powerful identity that, that I had to let go of and what a, what a celebration. 
Mm. What are you most enjoying learning right now? Um, I'm planning a trip, so I'm really enjoying figuring out where I want to go because travel is basically my favorite thing besides dogs and elephants and, you know, animals. <laughs> so uh, I'm really enjoying uh, researching places to go on a trip to. You know, do you have any like top three places that you can tell us about? Yeah. I mean, it's so, it's really up in the air because it's the very last minute, but I was, I was thinking maybe I should go to Bali again, but with COVID that's maybe not so great, such a great idea. So maybe Costa Rica, maybe Croatia, maybe Greece. (sighs) I don't, I'm not even, I don't know, but Mm -hmm. I'm going to go somewhere. Croatia is on my bucket list. It looks so beautiful. It looks so beautiful. So if I go, I'll send you a picture. Yes. I mean, any of those places would honestly be fine (laughs) after a year and a half of not traveling. Exactly. So I personally have a a birthday trip coming up in a couple of weeks. We're driving. So it's not, you know, it's not the big trip that I really want to go on, but I'm just so excited to get to do something. (laughs) Absolutely. Oh, I so hear that. And happy early birthday. Thank you. I have three more questions for you. The first is what does grace mean to you? Well, first, uh, Grace saved my life. And I mean that uh, because my grandmother's name is Grace. Mm. She's not alive anymore. I have three pictures on my desk of her. That is a lot of pictures, everybody, but (laughs) and she embodied what Grace is, which is to to me to be uh, the incarnation of creation and 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 to be living like creation God, whatever we want to call that thing, which is um, continually, um, filled with forgiveness for ourselves and for others and to see, um, the good and to, and the way the universe continues to show up for us over and over. And I'm pretty stubborn. So, and over and over and not withhold (laughs) things from us. So grace is, uh, maybe my favorite word. Mm, Me too. What is your go-to coffee shop order? Well, if it's before noon, it's a flat white. I uh, cannot drink caffeine after noon or I'm never going to go to sleep. So <laughs> afternoon, but it's some kind of tea, which I, that doesn't have caffeine. I really prefer to have a coffee, but I just won't be able to go to sleep. I, I do go to bed really early. So uh, that would be my, my coffee order. Beautiful. And the final question is, what do you want? the world to heal. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It means, uh, more to me than anything that people get to come home to who they are and come back into living. And, um, yeah, there's nothing makes me emotional thinking about it, but mm-hmm. there's, uh, nothing I care more deeply about than that. Mm-hmm. And if people felt really connected to this today and want to connect with you further, what's your favorite place for people to find you? Yeah. Um, Instagram, actually. Um, I spend a lot of time teaching on there and connecting with folks. So uh, you can find me there at Sarah with an H B like the letter B uh, coaching. Awesome. Uh, I hope to, to see you all there. We'll have all of that in the show notes. It's just been so lovely chatting with you today. Thank you so much. Oh, thank you so much for having me, Madison. It's been such an honor to be here with you. 
Thank you so much for tuning in to today's episode of Everything Belongs. With the number of podcasts and content online in your very full life, I really know the value of your attention and I'm so grateful for every minute that you spend listening to this show and having these conversations echo through your home, your car, your workout, your life. Thank you so much for your time and your attention. If you loved this episode, it would be just such a thrill for me to see you subscribe and leave a five-star review if you have a couple extra minutes. Whenever you leave a five-star review on iTunes, what happens is twofold. One, I get to see what you're loving and I get to see what episodes are really resonating with you. And in doing that, you actually provide me information on what kind of guests you want on the show and what specifically you enjoy where I can create more content that really serves you. And secondly, it helps other people find the podcast, people who might resonate with specific topics like evangelicalism, boundaries, calling your energy back, and really living more fully in your power. So you leaving a review, if it takes 30 seconds, really supports the show and growing and supports me in serving you even better. If you're wanting to find the show notes for today's episode and all previous episodes, you can do so by going to madisonmorrigan.com backslash podcast. And if you want to get started working with me in a very simple capacity, just dipping your toes into the coaching work I do, the best place to start is the call your energy back practice. This free journal guide is a three-step process with a short hypnotic meditation, and it allows you to set energetic boundaries and call your energy back, supporting you to take up all of your rightful space, embody your wholeness, and live with the power that comes when you belong to yourself. If that interests you, you can go to madisonmorgan.com backslash energy dash back to download it now. This meditation utilizes the brilliance of your subconscious mind and bilateral stimulation, along with powerful coaching questions to support you in releasing the energy and emotions of others to generate a field of protection all around you and will leave you feeling full of your true self, powerful, worthy, and whole. And of course, if we're not already connected, please come join me over on Instagram, DM me, and let me know your favorite part of this episode. Until next time, remember that curiosity can be a portal to a life where everything belongs. See you next time.